And we're still looking at the cries of Jesus. Today we're going to look at the cry of victory. So last Sunday we looked at the cry of compassion. On Friday we looked at the cry of anguish, which I thought Brenda just did an outstanding job of. Today we're going to complete with the cry of victory. So John chapter 19, verses 28 through to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop bench and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, it is glorious to be gathered around your throne room afresh on Easter Sunday. To consider all that you've done in our place. To consider and slow ourselves down enough to be able to marvel at you and stand in amazement of you. You are such an incredible saviour. And you are such an incredible king. So Lord, as I preach and as we listen today... Lord, would that continue to be worshipped to you? Because you're worthy of it. You're worthy of our gaze. And so, Lord, would we come to this this morning like little children, freshly examining all that you've done, and would we stand in awe of you? Amen. You know, throughout world history, there have been so many great things said over so many years. Quotes and speeches from people like Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill, C.S. Lewis, Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King. Quotes and cries and speeches that are often wise, often inspiring, sometimes even world-changing. So I think of that Martin Luther King speech that he gave in Washington, D.C., I have a dream. And he shares a speech of a united America We're neither black nor white. It doesn't make any difference anymore. Together as colors, they stand as a nation. What an incredible speech that played a part in changing a nation to the point where they would end up having a black president one day, all stemming in part from that great speech. And yet in all of world history, I would submit to you there has never been a greater speech or cry heard anywhere than this one. In John chapter 19, verse 30. The cry, it is finished. You know, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, it's just one word. It's called tetelestai. Just one word that now is translated, it is finished. And yet into that one word is packed so much meaning and depth and history. It's an incredibly incredible cry. See, just a few moments on from this, Jesus would be committing his spirit to the Father and would be breathing his last. And yet before that happens, he issues us this with this cry, which is not the moan of a defeated man or the patient sigh of resignation that just says, well, I suppose it's done. It is instead a great cry of victory. It is measured. It is purposeful. It is deliberate. And he is very deliberately crying victory. It is finished. I'm done. And it's such an incredible thing to say. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, says this about the cry, tetelestai. He says, it would need all the other words that have been spoken or can ever be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain it. And it is deep. I cannot fathom it. So it is. It is high. It is deep. It is packed with meaning. And so this morning, Easter Sunday morning, I want us to linger on this cry. And I want us to linger on it in the hope that we'll be amazed as we see what it all actually means. And we'll be overwhelmed as we see this cry makes a difference to every one of us in this room. This cry echoes and has meaning still today for each and every one of us in a purposeful way. So what does it all mean? What was finished? Well, there were four things that were finished that we need to understand if we're really going to be amazed and overwhelmed by this cry. And here's the first, number one. What was finished? Number one, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was finished. It was done. See, I grew up in a Christian home. So I went to church from my mother's womb, which is like, you know, good in one way, really bad in another way. It was great because I always went to church, but it was bad. And then at one point in my life, I put Jesus Christ on a level par with Father Christmas and the Easter Bunny. You know, I wasn't sure if I believed in any of them. So Jesus, Tooth Fairy, not sure. Not sure where I'm going with that. And I remember being really amazed when I started to get taught that do you realize this book isn't just little stories that you hear about in Sunday school. It's actually one story from Genesis through Revelation. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies that point to us very specifically about Jesus. That was like brand, news to, brand new news to me. I hadn't heard that before. And that the Old Testament is absolutely packed with Old Testament prophecies. Over 500 years, there were many different voices. Over 300 prophecies are given about Jesus, about the Messiah, about who's he going to be, about where he's going to be born, about what he's going to be like, about his work, about his residence, about his death. 29 specific prophecies relate about his death. With all due respect, birth and death are hard to navigate yourself around. Yet Jesus ticks every one of them. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way about these prophecies. Listen to his work. He says, It had been prophesied that the Messiah was to be born of a woman, without benefit of a human father. This was completed. It had been foretold that he was to be the seed of Abraham and of the line of David, that he should be born in Bethlehem, and he was so born. Prophecy had said that he should be named before he was born and that his birth would entail sorrow for others, and both things came to pass. Old Testament writers have spoken of his flight into Egypt, and a subsequent return to his own land. And it so happened. Christ's appearance was to be preceded by that of Elijah, and John the Baptist filled that role. Christ's miracles were foretold, that eyes of the blind would be opened, that ears of the deaf unstopped, and that the lame man would leap as a heart, and the tongue of the mute sing. Jesus performed all these miracles. Prophecy had intimated that he would speak in parables, And frequently, this was indeed his method of teaching. Prophecy had depicted him stilling the tempest and triumphantly entering into Jerusalem. 
both came to pass. He was to be despised and rejected by his own people. A friend would betray him. He was to be forsaken by his cherished disciples, led like a lamb to the slaughter. False witnesses would appear against him, and he would refuse to make a defense. He was to be unjustly condemned, sentenced to capital punishment, numbered with the transgressors, and pierced through his hands and feet. The crowd would sustain mockery of him, and soldiers would divide his garments and cast lots for his tunic. Listen. All this had been completed to the letter. And there was nothing of all that had been written of him that was now left undone. And so, indeed, it was finished. That incredible. 300 prophecies over 500 years, over many different voices. Every last one of them, Jesus completes to the letter. And there as he hangs at Calvary, in our place, the final pieces of the jigsaw get put into place. Psalm 22, over a thousand years before Jesus is born, David prophesies that one will come and they will divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. As Jesus hangs on the cross at Calvary, that's exactly what the soldiers are doing in front of him. They're dividing his garments. They're rolling the dice for who's going to have what. A thousand years before Jesus is born, Likewise, a thousand years before Jesus is born, David prophesies that the Messiah would be thirsty and given sour wine to drink. It's exactly what happens in verses 28 and 29. As he hangs at Calvary, he is thirsty. He cries out, I thirst, and they give him sour wine to drink. That is the final prophecy that it is to do with his entire life in the Old Testament. And immediately after he's given the sour wine, he cries, it is finished. What a sovereign king, don't you think? It's incredible. Every last piece of data in the Old Testament, every pointer to Christ has been fulfilled. And as the last one comes to pass, as he declares, I thirst, it's now done. So what does it all mean? Well, in part, he cries out, it is finished. He's He's giving us the reality that his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is finished. The entire Old Testament has come to a close and he's, he's achieved every last one of them. It is finished. But that's not all is finished. Number two, his battle with Satan was finished. See, in Genesis 3.15, a saviour, a serpent crusher, is promised. In Genesis 1 and 2, mankind is created. God creates them, man and woman. Equal in identity and worth and value, man and woman, he creates them different and complementary, and yet both of them together reflect the glory of the Lord. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, mankind falls. Adam does the very thing that God says, don't do this. Well, Adam goes and does that. Sin comes into the world. Satan, as the serpent, is there. And as God talks to Adam, he curses Adam. As he talks to Eve, he curses Eve. And as he talks to the serpent, namely Satan himself, he says, one will come. And although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. I would have loved to have seen that. That moment where he's saying, you're going to hurt someone that's going to come, but he's going to kill you. 
he's going to crush your head. And the truth is, the entirety of the Old Testament then is called, in many ways, the hunt for the serpent crusher. Who is it going to be? Who is this one going to be who will be bruised by Satan, but ultimately he will crush Satan's head and make it possible for us to get back into the garden? Possible for us to be with God again? Possible to spend time in unity and joy and blessing with God again that mankind have been removed from because of their sin? Who is it going to be? Well, Adam and Eve pop a baby out. They call him Cain. Doesn't sound that great in the English. But in the Hebrew, Cain means here he is. Because she thought, this is probably him. This will be the serpent crusher. He's born, we'll go back in. Well, here he wasn't. He killed his brother. He was a terrible sinner. So who's it going to be now? Is it going to be Abraham? Is it going to be Isaac? Is it going to be Jesse or Joseph or Judah? No, they're good, but not good enough. The story continues. Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be David? Is it going to be Solomon? No, they're good, but not the one we're looking for. And it, all the way through the Old Testament, as the one story continues to unfold, we learn a lot about the serpent crusher. And so we learn that the serpent crusher is going to be a lion from the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, as Jesse prophesies over his sons as he's about to breathe his last, he says about Judah and points to Judah and makes it clear that one will come from you who will be a king who everybody will ultimately bow before. This serpent crusher is going to be a lion from the tribe of Judah. He's going to come through the bloodline of Judah. And we also understand that this serpent crusher is also going to be a lamb. See, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus talking about Abraham, says, Abraham saw the day of the Christ and rejoiced. He's talking there about Genesis chapter 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, everyone knows the story, right? Abraham is standing over his son with a dagger about to kill Isaac. Remember that? And he's got this dagger in his hand and he's about to kill his son. That's what God's asked him to do. And an angel of the Lord cries out, Stop! And he stops and he looks around and there's a ram caught in the thicket. And God makes it clear, I want you to kill the ram and not your son. It says of that moment that Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. And it says in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham himself said, On the mount of the Lord it will be provided. He knew that in some way something dramatic was going to happen here. That place was Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah became Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the home of Calvary. Abraham seemed to have understand in some way a sacrifice is going to happen here in our place. And the sacrifice is going to be like this ram. A ram that became ultimately a lamb. So all the way through Exodus, we see this theme of the Passover lamb. One who's going to come, who's going to be spotless, without wrinkle, who's going to be perfect, who's going to be sacrificed, and through the blood of the Lamb, all the people of God will be saved. But the hunt goes on all the way through the Old Testament. Who is it going to be? Who is this Lamb? Who is this Lion of the tribe of Judah? And as the sun sets on the Old Testament, we still don't know. They don't know. 300 prophecies about him, but none of them know who it's going to be. Until John the Baptist, as the final Old Testament prophet, doesn't point towards Jesus and onto Jesus about what he's going to be like, 
seeing Jesus come towards him to be baptized by him, he points right at him. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This prophet was unique because he wasn't pointing on towards somebody he had never met. He was pointing right at him and saying, This is him. This is the Lamb of God. This is the serpent crusher. This is the king. This is the one we've all been waiting for. He's the Lamb of God that the entire Old Testament points to. This is him. And then he baptizes him and Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And yet, when you catch up with Jesus in John chapter 19, you wonder what on earth went wrong. I thought this was the serpent crusher. I thought this was the king. I thought this was the one who was going to get us back into the garden, get us back to be with God himself. But now he's dying. Now the Romans are crucifying him. It all seems to have gone tragically wrong. And yet in reality, as Jesus hung on a cross, he didn't hang there in tragedy. He hung there in triumph. Because he was at the cross he was crushing the serpent. It was at the cross. He was crushing the serpent once and for all. It was there at the cross. He was doing the binding. It was there at the cross. He was binding the strong man. It was there at the cross that he was parading him around as a defeated enemy and letting him know, I have paid the price now for the captives to go free. You no longer have dominion over all things. I do. I've beaten you. And Satan always knew that was a possibility. Think about it. Think about the way Satan operated. He always knew that if Jesus Christ, as a sinless sacrifice, gave his life as a ransom for many, then he would be doomed. And so Satan spent his time trying to kill Jesus. For the first two years, through King Herod, he's trying to pursue Mary and Joseph to have this son killed so that the serpent crusher can be killed. When he can't do that and he can't destroy him, he seems to tempt Jesus. Tempting him and enticing him and distracting him away from his mission. Doing all he can to say, don't follow your father in this, follow me. We can align ourselves together. We can do great things together. And yet to God's glory, Jesus Christ never gave in. So as he hangs on the cross, he's not only saying it is finished to all the Old Testament prophecies being done. He's in effect looking at Satan and saying, I won. It is finished. You never killed me. I gave my life freely as a ransom for many. You never distracted me. You never tempted me. You never enticed me. I die here as a sinless sacrifice to bind you so that the captives may go free. So that they may rise, go forth and follow thee. Yea, no longer in chains to you. It says in the book of Colossians, that And now, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? At the cross, he triumphed over Satan and his powers. He broke the chains that they had between people, and he paraded them around as a public spectacle. You know, sometimes, particularly as Christians, I think we can make the mistake of thinking that Jesus and Satan, uh, the war between them is still to come in some way. There's still going to be something end time that's going to be huge and massive and we hope Jesus wins. Listen, there is no end time battle. It happened at Calvary and Satan lost and Jesus won. 
When he cried, it is finished. The battle was done in that moment and Jesus Christ is declaring himself to be the victor. I beat you. And so although we await the lightning rod of Jesus returning and binding Satan and putting him to hell for all eternity, without doubt, the battle has been won. A.W. Pink, one of my famous English theologians, says it this way. He says, here at Calvary, we see the destruction of Satan's power. The cross sounded the death knell of the devil's power. To human appearances, it looked like the moment of his greatest triumph. Yet in reality, it was the hour of his ultimate defeat. In view of the cross, the Savior declared, Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out, meaning Satan. It is true that Satan has not yet been chained and cast into the bottomless pit. Nevertheless, sentence has been passed. And though not yet executed, his doom is certain. And his power is already broken, so far as believers are concerned. What great news, don't you think? The lightning bolt of victory has been seen and recorded at Calvary, according to Satan. And so now all we await is the thunderous roar of Jesus' return when he removes him for all eternity. The battle's been done. And Jesus Christ has won. And as he cries out then, it is finished. It is the greatest cry of victory you've ever heard because he's looking at Satan saying, you're done. I beat you. Get your hands off my people. For whosoever calls out to me and puts their faith in me, they will be saved. Because I beat you. And you are done. But that's not all. Also included in the phrase tetelestai, it is finished, is this, number three, his suffering was finished. See, there's no doubt that suffering was something that so clearly marked out the Savior's life, wasn't it? It was prophesied about him before he was born, in Isaiah 53, that he'd be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with difficulty, acquainted with suffering throughout his life. That's exactly what happened. He was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. And that's something that really falls off the tongue real well. And everybody goes, oh, that's awesome. Well, you imagine having that baby and you doing it. Popping yourself into the kindy farm or popping that newborn baby into that manger. People go, I don't want to do that. People get upset whether they go on their front or their back. Yet this mum is like, well, that's all we got. He's born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. That's where his mum and dad are welcoming people around as they scoop poop and food out of this borrowed stable. For two years then, he's pursued by King Herod. He says, Mum and Dad, don't go home. They're forced to sojourn in Egypt. They don't live in Egypt. They're strangers in that place. But they know King Herod is trying to kill their boy. So they hide in Egypt so that he's not killed. And throughout then his life, Jesus knew what it was to be unliked and mocked and ridiculed and classed as stupid and unpopular. And yet it's here at Calvary that his suffering really does culminate and go to a totally different level. As he dies in pain and with great shame. It all begins then in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested. 
and his friends that he's walked with for three years, his closest allies, as he's arrested, flee from him and run from him. He's now by himself, about to go through great horrors, and no one's with him. It's just him. As he's abandoned by all his friends, his disciples have deserted him. And one of them, Judas, even does the deed. He goes and kisses him on his cheek. And Jesus knows full well, you're identifying me to all the battalion. And as he does, that's when they jump on him and arrest him. And drag him away, ultimately to murder him. But prior to murdering him, they want him to suffer. A crown of thorns is rammed into his head. He's clothed in purple robe. You know, the whole point of a crown and a purple robe was the sign of a king. He was the king. But they want to mock him for it. Can you imagine how tempting that would be in that moment when you know you are the king? And you can call millenniums of, millenniums of angels down right now to prove to you all that I am the king. Imagine how tempting that would have been in that moment to say, you don't think I'm the king? Here you go. And yet the very thing that he could have done, he didn't do. Because he knew that would ruin everything. So he let them. He let them ram a crown of thorns into his head. He let them clothe him in purple. He let them beat him and whip him and scourge him. And then ultimately, he let them crucify him. The soldiers mocking around him, dividing his clothes up. The crowd spitting on him and mocking him and jeering him throughout the whole thing. And yet most painful of all, as Brenda did such a wonderful job of Friday drawing out, was the reality that in this moment, the father turned his face away. He poured out his righteous anger on his own son. His wrath on his boy, causing Jesus to declare, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew why, but in such pain and anguish, he is overwhelmed. My friends, we should never lose sight of the suffering that Jesus took in our place. In this moment, it was over. As a prior to breathing his last, he declares, it is finished. A man of sorrows all his life, but he made it. He doesn't have to suffer anymore. He's going to go be at the right hand of the Father. He made it without sinning. He gave his life as a ransom for many in anguish and grace. It is finished. But we must never lose sight of this side of the cross. You know why? Well, because if you've ever wondered how serious your sin really is, then gaze at the suffering of Jesus Christ. See, I think sometimes we can be flippant with sin. It's no big deal, right? Well, go tell that to Jesus as he hangs at Calvary in your place. That I don't think my sin's a big deal. It's a massive deal. If we want to be motivated as Christians to change in our lives, to put off the old self and be renewed in our mind, to put on the new self, then we need to be standing by Calvary all the time. Because it's not just about changing to be a better person. 
It's about changing because I realize my sin cost you that. And so if this is how serious my sin is, I want to flee from it. And I want to become like you. When we gaze at Calvary, we see the seriousness of our sin. But also when we gaze at Calvary, we see the wonder of his love, don't we? See, it's so possible for people to feel like the black sheep. The person that kind of, you know, they're in the church, but they're kind of, you know, the odd one out. They just feel tolerated in some way. Maybe even tolerated by the Lord. But somehow they just snuck in the back. My friends, God doesn't tolerate anybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, God is not tolerating you. He passionately and personally loves you. And I know it because that's what the cross represents. God the Father giving his Son so that you may have life and that in abundance. But God the Father killing his Son to make that possible. That's how he feels about you. He's not tolerating you. He passionately and personally loves you. Thomas Kelly in a hymn, way back in 1820, talking about what Jesus went through, but what happens afterwards, says, The head that was once crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns this mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right. The King of kings and Lord of lords and heaven's eternal light. My friends, it is finished. It's done. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, it's done. His battle with Satan, it is done. His suffering, he's finished gloriously. It is done. And also, number four, what is finished is his glorious work of salvation was finished. Everything he'd come to do to make a way for us to be saved It was now done. John chapter 12, just a few chapters short of these verses today. Jesus himself says, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I didn't come to judge it. I came to save the world. My friends, that's the storyline of the entirety of Scripture. Right at the start, we see God making us to find our identity and our joy and our satisfaction and peace with him. And yet mankind really early on in the book of Genesis exchanges the creator for the created. They want to reject the creator and they're just going to run with the created. Thanks very much. We're going to live for ourselves. We're going to do our thing. We're going to have everything in this world and this is what we're going to look to for identity and joy and happiness. But that's screwed up massively. This place is broken. That's why when we open the papers, you just see sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. It's a broken down house. And the truth is we're a broken down people as well. God made us to find our identity and peace in him, but we rejected him. That's what sin ultimately is. And because of that, we're cut off from him. He's a holy king and a holy creator. And we are a million and million and million miles away from him and cannot return to him by ourselves. Sometimes people think, oh, but if I do a bit of charity, I'm sure I'll get back to him. No. 
Well, if I go to church, I'm sure I'll get back to him. Nope. If I sing loud, maybe that's really help. No. It would be like you trying to jump to the moon. If you can jump one meter or ten, doesn't really matter. There's a long way off. You can never get back to him. The only way you can get back to him is by him doing something miraculous. But we can't expect that from him, right? Why would he do that? We rejected him, not him rejecting us. And yet, God so loved you that he sent his only son on the greatest rescue mission ever told so that you could jump to the moon, so that he could bring you back. Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life that we could never do and then died in our place as our substitute. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He came through the bloodline of Judah. And he is the Lamb of God. He is the sinless sacrifice that came through his blood to make a way for all his people to be clothed in righteousness. And at Calvary, he died as the ultimate Lamb of God so that we could have life and that in abundance. That's why he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. And he made it possible then that if we'll put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, if we'll truly take him, just as Esther declared today, as our King and our Savior, then we will be saved. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. And so as he's about to breathe his last, as he hangs on the cross, he says, it is finished. The greatest rescue mission ever told. It was done. I've come and Father, I've done it. Father, we made it. I achieved everything you sent me for. And so now all those who put their faith in me as Lord and Savior, they can be saved. It is finished. And what I love about this story, if we were to read the rest of it, which we won't because we don't have time, but if we did... What we quickly see after Jesus declares it is finished and then gives his spirit up to the Father. It's like the Father says, yep, it's finished. Because as soon as Jesus declares it is finished and breathes his last, the curtain temple that divides everybody from God himself in the Holy of Holies, the curtain temple is there and the curtain which divides it is torn in two, not bottom to top, but from top to bottom, as God the Father himself says, yeah, it's finished, boom. Anybody now can have access to me through faith in my son. Anybody through the blood of my son, the ultimate lamb of God, can now have access to me in the Holy of Holies. Not the great high priest once a year on behalf of the nation, but whosoever will. It's like the Father himself is saying, yeah, too right, it's finished. Look at this, my curtain is being opened now for you. It's all access gained for you through my son. And then three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead as the father says, yeah, it is finished. Here, my son, have your life back. And come now, sit at my right hand and reign over your people. The resurrection is ultimately the father saying, yes, it is finished. He is exactly who he said he was. He is my son. He is the Lamb of God. His victory over Satan is complete. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is complete. His work of salvation is complete. His suffering is complete. So rise, my son, and reign with me now 
over your people because it is finished. A.W. Pink once again says it this way. This mission upon which God had sent his son into the world was now accomplished. The difficult work was done. The divinely given task was performed. A work more honorable and momentous than ever entrusted to man or angels had been completed. That for which he had left heaven's glory, that for which he had taken upon himself the form of a servant, and that for which he had remained on earth for 33 years was now completed. Nothing remained to be added. The goal of the incarnation had been reached. The mission upon which God had sent his Son into the world had been accomplished. His work, his glorious work, was finished. And that it was. It is finished. What was finished? His battle with Satan was finished. He won. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy was finished. Completed it all. His suffering was finished. Man of sorrows, acquainted with Greece, but not anymore. It was complete. And his glorious work of salvation was finished. The temple curtain had now been torn in two. So whosoever will will come to me. I'll accept them through the blood of my son. 